You're listening to That'll Preach. We are going to bring you another interview uh, today, and uh, it's a great interview. Somebody that uh, you can listen to some of his podcasts, you can listen to some of the interviews he's done on other podcasts, and uh, he's got a lot of great work on one of the great, uh, people call him the patron saint of evangelicalism, the great writers of, uh, of the Christian tradition, I think, C.S. Lewis. And you can't go wrong if you want to talk about C.S. Lewis. Andrew Lazo is here with us. He is an independent scholar on C.S. Lewis, and he hosts a podcast called Pints with Jack. So make sure you check that out. And he is uh, spending some time here today to talk a little bit about C.S. Lewis and one of his uh, great works, Till We Have Faces. But Andrew, thank you for being with us. Hey, Brian, it's a it's such a pleasure to uh, to join join you. I uh, want to note that uh, I'm just the the kind of the latest addition to co-host of Pints with Jack. Uh, David Bates and Matt, Matt Bush have been doing it f- since the beginning. And and we're now in season three. Where we're looking at Out of the Silent Planet. Uh, when they started talking about Till We Have Faces in season, I'm sorry, we're in season six right now. But in season three, they had me on to interview and I had so much fun. I said, hey, can I can I co-host with you guys? So we've done screw tape and four loves together. And so it's a joy to, to, uh, to, to talk with you guys. And yeah, Lewis, I think is, uh, well, uh, one of his friends said, you'll never get to the bottom of him. And I think that's about the size of it. I remember the first time I read C.S. Lewis and I was like, man, this guy, this guy writes stuff that I've always thought, but I could never articulate. And he had such a grasp yeah. of how to really get you to think about the world in a different way and somehow see it more clearly. And I think that's what I've always yeah. appreciated. About well, him. and seeing clearly is actually one of the huge themes that we'll talk about today with Till We Have Faces. So I think that's brilliant. Uh, there's a wonderful uh, communication scholar, Steve Beebe, just retired from Texas State uh, and one of the world's experts on communications and also a huge Lewis fan, just wrote a book um, called C.S. Lewis as Master Communicator and explores why, how Lewis is so effective. And 80 years later now, we're still reading and uh, and finding what he wrote really fresh, which I think is re- remarkable. So he's still still stirring things in, in lots of folks. Maybe the patron saint of evangelicalism, but as a as a priest in the Episcopal Church, I'm gladly uh, proud to, uh, to claim him as one of our own. But he appeals to everybody. The Roman Catholics love him, the Mormons love him, um, and wide range of denominations of Christianity. And he's still speaking. And, uh, and I'm, I'm always glad to, uh, to, to talk about him. What initially drew you to studying Lewis? And really, it seems like a labor of love for you. What kind of gripped you about Lewis? Yeah, absolutely. Not only a labor of love, but kind of a longstanding debt. You know, Lewis says of George MacDonald, I owed him as much as one man can owe another. And that's certainly how I feel about Lewis. Um, I was raised in, a, in an agnostic family. There was no faith, no church attendance. Um, but I had this great aunt who would send me um, marvelous books. Uh, and that's how I came across the Chronicles of Narnia. And when I found the Chronicles, I loved them. They were a great adventure story. And also found myself kind of stirred by Peter. Just loved how noble he was, although I didn't really have the spiritual kind of language, uh, theological language, to understand what that was about. When I was in high school, through the witness of friends in a public high school in Sacramento, California, I came to faith. And uh, shortly thereafter, a couple of years later, remember rereading the Chronicles of Narnia and feeling very smart to have figured out there's Christianity in Narnia. I thought I was the only one who knew that. Um, a few years later, I had moved to Nashville, Tennessee. I'd gone to Bible school at the Moody Bible Institute for a couple of years loved Christian music, wanted to be involved in the Christian music industry. And so I went to Christ Community Church and met half my record collection there, including one Sunday, Phil Keggy, who's an amazing uh, guitar player, one of the pioneers of Christian music, uh, still playing uh, now in his 70s, but um, but in the 70s and 80s, huge, huge guy. And so he was a hero of mine and he started going to my church. And so I approached him and and struck up a conversation. We became friends. And uh, not long after that, I, he invited me to come on the road with him to sell T-shirts and to help with the travel arrangements. So I was his road manager and I was going through a real crisis in my own faith. And 
kind of found a lot of shallowness, not in a lot of intellectual theological heft or depth. And I realize now that probably a lot of that shallowness is just my own projected on the world. Um, but uh, that's when Phil lent me Letters to an American Lady by C.S. Lewis, a long correspondence that he kept up with a woman in the States who he never met. And shortly thereafter, I'm not sure how I found my way to, to Surprised by Joy, Lewis's spiritual autobiography. And when I found that, I found somebody who had thought through his atheism better than I thought through my Christianity. And I thought, man, hmm. I got to get to the bottom of this guy. And that's been 30 years now that I've been trying to get to the bottom of him. And uh, I maybe scratched the surface, but there's still so much more. So he was instrumental. Um, so, I mean, the way that I phrase it in my book, Mere Christians, um, I said that when Lewis was a child, he sparked my imaginative life. And when I became a man, he saved my intellectual life. And so the work that I do, even coming to the Church of England and coming to priesthood, is in some ways repaying that debt and wanting to follow Lewis's model of of shedding light on the most important things, most importantly, the love of God. And so that's kind of how I came to Lewis and, and what I'm, how he still influence, influences me today. I like the way you phrased that, the imaginative life and then the intellectual life as you were older. And that's what really strikes me about Till We Have Faces because it seems like this is really the fusion of those two, the intellectual life that Lewis has yes. in his nonfiction writings but also this incredible narrative tale that he tells. And it's one of his later books. Is that right? It's uh, his last novel. Yeah. Um, so Lewis lived from 1898 until the day John F. Kennedy died. They died within an hour or so of each other in, uh, in November 1963. Um, just to kind of give you, a, a, give you and your listeners a run up if you're not familiar, Lewis was an atheist for most of, half of his life. And then in the early 30s, converted to theism first, believing in God. And then in part because of conversations with J.R.R. Tolkien and other Christian friends, came to faith in Christ. And uh, then in 1940, began publishing uh, Apologetics. I uh, wrote his science fiction trilogy, the first of which came out in 38. Um, so in the 40s, a lot of screw tape letters, the books that became mere Christianity, miracles, the great divorce, uh, tons of essays and poems in the 1950s kind of figured that his, uh, apologetic work or his directly theological work, as he says to Carl F.H. Henry, uh, was done. And so begins writing this kind of indirect theology or what we now talk about as cultural apologetics. You know, Houston Christian University's got a whole program based on this kind of imaginative apologetics. So Lewis is still writing theologically, but he's writing in his native language. He wasn't, uh, he loved story. And so he writes Narnia in the 50s, um, uh, 48 to 53 or so is kind of the time frame. And in 1955, um, he is kicking around an idea with Joy Davidman, his future wife, who had become friends with him. And uh, they kind of collaborated on writing Till We Have Faces in 55, published in 56. So he goes on to publish things like Letters to Malcolm, Chiefly on Prayer, Reflections on the, on, on the Psalms, and uh, The Four Loves, and famously, after he died, Grief Observed. Um, but Till We Have Faces, he called Far and Away My Best Book. Uh, and it's kind of late in his life. It's some of his most mature work. And I think, for my money, one of the best books ever written. Well, talk to us a little bit about Till We Have Faces. What kind of background do we need to know about this book to really understand it? Because the first time I read it, I was I was lost. I was like, I, I don't know. I don't understand this. And then it actually <laughs> was through listening to people talk about it. And some of, the stuff, some of your work was very helpful. That when I read it the second time, I started to see all the levels that Lewis was working on. But what? how would you describe or how would you introduce Till We Have Faces to somebody who has known a little bit of Lewis but hasn't really delved into this particular work? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great question. And your own experience was the same as mine. Um, it's what I call the, the Till We Have Faces whiplash. Um, I'd read a lot of Lewis and loved Lewis. And so I'm rooting around the bookstores trying to find more Lewis to read. And I read Till We Have Faces with all these expectations and it kind of went right over my head and it was like, whoa, what was that? You know, it just, it seemed so different and so foreign to everything else that Lewis had done. 
In fact, in my 16 years of serious study of tilia faces, it's not only, uh, I know the tone seems different, but it's right at the heart of everything Lewis is doing. And in some ways brings all of, all of Lewis's work into focus. And this is a work that he says was far and away my best book. And elsewhere, he calls it much my best book. And I thought about that. I mean, either Lewis is exaggerating, but he's not really given to that. Or he's lying to us, and he's certainly not given to that. Or maybe he's telling the truth. Maybe this is Lewis's best book. But it certainly is difficult. And so one of the things that I'd recommend uh, for, for listeners who have read Lewis, jump in, give it a try. Um, figure out that you're going to be kind of confused by it. Um, because Lewis is doing something really profound. Um, but just, I would say your first read through, kind of read through it, you know, and, and, and give yourself over to it. Lewis talks in Experiment and Criticism about surrendering to a book, right? Not using it, but enjoying it. And so let that book kind of do what it's doing. And if you don't understand it, um, I'm here to tell you that your misunderstanding is, it, it, it's not because there isn't so much profound going on with it. Um, Lewis, I think, in some ways is hiding things a little too well. So this is, um, it's a novel. It's a myth retold, Lewis says, till we have faces a myth retold. It's a feminist novel in some ways. It's a psychological novel in some ways. It's a spiritual autobiography. So we have the story of Orwal, the Queen of Gloam. Um, and her kind of complaint against the gods. But during the course of the book, she comes to believe in the gods and the God and, and, and finds out that God actually is a God of love. So um, in some ways, it's exactly the same story that Lewis has always been telling. So um, I would say first read, just kind of read it through, give yourself over to it. Start in the back. There's a note in the back of the book um, creatively titled Note, and it's uh, a, a recapping of the, the Cupid and Psyche myth. So that's the myth that Lewis is retelling in this book. The myth retold is the myth of Cupid and Psyche. So read the quick summary of that and look at what Lewis is doing with it. He's, there's an alteration he thought should be made to the story. So he makes a major change in that myth. Um, but start at the back in the, with the note. And so I'd say that's probably the first way to go about it. And then I've got a bunch of principles, you know, kind of four core topics or four or five kind of real guides to what Lewis is doing. And I'm happy to go over a couple of those with you. But that's, I think, some of the way to start. Yeah, I'd love to hear the four keys to understanding two way of phases. I think that would be helpful. Sure. Well, and some of them are kind of autobiographical in terms of the way that I was uh, that I studied the book. I was invited in 2006 to speak for the C.S. Lewis Foundation um, at a at a conference at Williams College in Massachusetts and invited to teach a, a class on two of Lewis's books. And immediately I just blurted out, hey, I want to teach Tilia Faces and the Four Loves because uh, I kind of felt like those were somehow connected. Um, so I designed a kind of a, a week long course and and uh, and went to Williams as I'm prepping on the plane, which every good scholar knows about doing. Um, I'm reading through Till We Have Faces and it occurs to me that Orwell is lying to us, not just being a little bit self-deceptive, but like out and out deceiving people. And I realized that when Orwell speaks and talks, very often she's not telling the truth. And in order to like make spiritual sense out of what Orwell is saying about the gods, especially, you kind of have to flip them right, flip what she says right side up. And I said, hmm, that's very familiar. That's what Lewis is doing all throughout the screw tape letters, right? So I'm like, okay, the four loves are in there. The screw tape letters are in there. There's also this, um, this, struggle with identity and struggle with self and giving up the self in order to get God, which is the heart of the great divorce. And so I really started hearing echoes of the great divorce in there. And I thought, wow, okay, first of all, Orwell is really kind of lying to us. Um, and that deception kind of comes 
from the very beginning. She says at the beginning of the book that she's going to write her complaint against the gods. Um, and then on page, oh, it's like page 93, somewhere in there. Um, so Orwal is the older sister of Psyche. Psyche's beautiful. Um, the god Cupid, who in this book is the god of the mountain, kind of whisks her away to his palace and uh, keeps her for himself. And then the, Orwal comes to visit the palace. Um, but uh, by the god taking Psyche from her, this was her younger sister. It was kind of the only love she had in the world. She feels jealous of the gods. And so she complains against the gods for, for kind of taking her love away. Um, but she's being a little deceptive. Before I circle back to screw tape, though, let me set the stage with the four loves. And if you've read the four loves, you know that there are four Greek concepts of love. Storgi, which is family love. It's demographic love. It's, um, it's love of country. It's the reason why I'm a Houston Astros fan. I lived in Houston for 20 years. You basically, you, you generally like the, 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 the teams or whatever that you're associated with. Your mother would love you no matter what you look like. It's kind of this unconditional love because we're part of some kind of clan or family. It's familiar in that sense. It's why your alma mater, you know, still stirs your heartstrings. It's why you have friends on Facebook or Instagram from high school, even though you'll never talk to them. So that's story. It's kind of familial love. Um, there's also philia. Philia is a love that's shoulder to shoulder looking at the same things the same way. It's geeking out over whatever it is, NASCAR, the Beatles, knitting, C.S. Lewis, whatever it is that you love. If you really love that and you find somebody else who loves that same thing the same way, that's philia. That's friendship. And friendship separates from the crowd so as not to be rude. Nobody wants to hear me talk about C.S. Lewis all day, except my C.S. Lewis buddies. And that's why we go and we, uh, and we hang out together. Um, so philia love is shoulder to shoulder looking at the same thing the same way. You're not thinking so much about the relationship. You're thinking about the interest that you have. Uh, eros is face to face. It's romantic love. It's sexual love. It's mostly falling in love. Um, and where Eros separates from the crowd, just like Philia does, Philia, friendship, would welcome a second or a third or a fourth person as long as they loved the same things the same way. Um, Eros doesn't want anybody else there. They just want the partner there. So an Eros looks at the, at the partner, whereas Philia looks at the object hmm. of the love. So those are that's a very helpful book in terms of kind of navigating our affections. Agape, as the British pronounce it, or agape, is divine love, unconditional love. And that's the only kind of love that God has for us. And we can rise to agape or agape um, from time to time. Um, it's unconditional love. It's grace. It's, it's, uh, it's God's love. So what you find when you have the four loves in mind, and then you read the beginning of, of Till We Have Faces, on the very first page, she says, I am old now and have not much to fear from the anger of gods. I have no husband, Eros, nor child, Storgi, nor hardly a friend, Philia, through whom the gods can harm me, can hurt me. Wow. Agape, or the opposite of agape. So the four loves are embedded in the second sentence. Right there in the beginning. Then, yeah. Exactly. It's right there. Page 23. This is Orwell's description of her sister Psyche. I wanted to be a wife so that I could have been her real mother, Storgi. I wanted to be a boy so she could be in love with me, Eros. I wanted her to be my full sister instead of my half-sister, Philia. I wanted her to be a slave so that I could set her free and make her rich. Agape, the four loves is the structure of Till We Have Faces. And Lewis hid it so well that everybody missed it, which is why he had to go and put it in prose. Well, and we know that Lewis often will match a prose work with a fiction work. That hideous strength, Lewis says in the preface to that book, this is a retelling of the principles that made up my book, The Abolition of Man. Hmm. So you've got a prose work and a fictional work. And Lewis is still trying to say the same point in, a, in, in different ways. We know that Lewis does this because he's got an essay called 
um, seems like a sleeper, but it's a great essay called Variation in Shakespeare and Others. And he talks about variation, meaning when Shakespeare describes something, he describes it in several different ways and by variation kind of conveys the meaning. That's what Lewis is doing. He's conveying the four loves in fiction. Nobody gets it. He hid the secret too well. And so then he writes out the prose version of the four loves in 1960. At the end of the book, in book two, you got those strange vision sequences, but what is happening throughout all of that is she's realizing that she has betrayed all of the loves. She's thwarted all of the natural and the supernatural loves. So somebody tells her about her sister, Redival. That's sisterly love, that's, that's, um, that's uh, Storgi. And she realized that she hasn't loved Redival the way that she should. Bardia is her captain at arms and she had Eros for him and he had friendship or philia for her, but she betrayed the philia between them by keeping him at the palace late because she was in love with him. Right. And then when he dies, she goes to meet Bardia's wife, Ansett, and Ansett's all angry at her because Orwell took so much of her husband's time and... Orwell is ugly of face, so she wears a veil. And so um, she realizes that Ansett was jealous of Orwell, and she whips off her, her veil, and she says, you're jealous of me? And then Ansett realized that the two of them both loved Bardia. Yeah, that was and a crazy Ansett scene. says, yeah. yeah. And remember what she says, oh, you too. Yeah. That phrase, you too, is the phrase of the beginning of friendship. When Lewis right. meets Arthur Grease, he's like, oh, you like that book too. And in The Four Loves, he says, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. That's the spark of the beating of friendship. So in betraying Eros, she has at least the possibility of philia with Ansett, but then the veil falls and she, betrayed, and she also betrayed Bardia's friendship love for her. They shared that love, but she secretly was in love with him. She should have set the fox free. She betrayed his love. She betrayed his friendship and his storge. She even defeats the Eros between Psyche and her husband, the god of the mountain. Now we know from the fox that Ungat is the Glomish equivalent of Aphrodite or Venus. And so Ungat's son is then the Glomish equivalent of Cupid or Psyche. Uh, or Cupid or Eros. So when Psyche marries Eros, Orwell goes and does this thing, you'll have to read the book, does this thing that betrays and undoes their love. She thwarts all of the four loves. Also, these gods of love, and you have to ask who's speaking to her, it's actually Eros, the son of Ungat, or the god of the mountain, the son of Ungat, Eros, Eros the son of Aphrodite, Cupid, the son of Venus. And he's been loving her all the way through her life, but she refused to admit it. And so it's only in book two that she has had a conversion and now calls the gods good gods, calls him Lord. And so what you have in the book is this kind of working out of the four loves. Once you understand that, especially on a second read, especially if you've read the four loves, you'll see it everywhere. So that's, that's one of the real keys. So it's screw tape, great divorce, four loves. And then I figured, you know, I know Lewis well enough. If he does something somewhere, he does it everywhere. And so he's very consistent with his themes, right? And so I wondered if all of Lewis's other books are there. And Brian, I'm here to tell you, literally everything Lewis wrote is echoed in the four loves. You can name me a book and I can show you an echo. All of the Narnias are in there. Not only Great Divorce, um, the, the Allegory of Love is there. Dimer is there. Miracles is there. Mere Christianity is all over the place in that book. And so all of what Lewis is really trying to do is encapsulated. So those are kind of two of the first principles. There's a couple more, but those are what's going on. Lewis is kind of doing all of his work in this one book. And it's the structure of it is the four loves. I was always fascinated by how he constructs the system of worship, or rather how it's described from Oral's perspective. And I, I had a, when I realized that she had been lying 
not just to the reader, but really to herself. And that's such a profound way to look at it because when you read the book, you're like, this poor lady, she's just, she's ugly. Everyone abandons her. She's got all these burdens and, you know, all this stuff. And the only good thing she had in her life has been stripped from her, you know, or something like that. And then this sense in which at her conversion, she looks back and she gets it. She realizes that she was the one who was distorted. And it's almost like she projects herself onto this God of the mountains. She totally does that. Yeah, well, and it's it, the 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 thing to do, especially on the first read, is be really careful because by the time you get to to book two, the last four chapters of the book, you're so eager to find out what's going on. It's really easy to read quickly through those last four chapters, and there's some strange things. There's some dream visions and all, and some other stuff going on. But I would uh, I would counsel your listeners on your next read of it or on your first read, read those those four chapters really carefully. And here's how it begins. Not many days have passed since I wrote those words, no answer. We'll get to that in a second. But I must unroll my book again. It would be better to rewrite it from the beginning, but I think there's no time for that. Since I cannot mend the book, I must add to it. To leave it as it was would be to die perjured. What's perjury? It's false testimony Hmm. in a court. And she says on page one, I will write in this book what no one who has happiness would dare to write. I will accuse the gods, especially the God who lives on the gray mountain. That is, I will tell all he has done to me from the very beginning, as if I were making my complaint of him before a judge. Right. And so all of that book one is her complaint, but it's perjury. She is lying and she acknowledges it and she's prone to lie. So that's part of why kind of keeping screw tape in mind is is helpful. But to get back to what you were just saying, she refers right there at the beginning of book one or book two um, to the words, no answer. And then on the very last page of the book, I ended my first book with the words, no answer. Twice Lewis calls our attention to the last words of book one. Well, let's read that passage. Why must holy places be dark places? There's no creature so noxious to man man as the gods. Let them answer my charge if they can. Maybe they'll strike me mad or leprous or turn me into a beast. But when they turn me into a beast, will not all the world then know that this is because they have no answer? So I'm going to make a complaint and they're going to punish me cruelly and everybody will know that the gods have no answer. If we're going to pay attention to the last two words of book one, we should also pay attention to the first two words of book one. And the first two words are, I am. I am old now and have not much to fear from the anger of gods. First of all, notice that she's appropriating for herself the very name of God. This is what made the Jews in John 8 pick up the stones to stone Jesus because he said before Abraham was, I am. So she appropriates God's name. But if the first two words of book one are, I am, and the last two words of book one are, no answer, What she comes to the conclusion of in book one is, I am no answer. Wow. Right? And that's the first of the spiritual revelations. That's the first of the Billy Graham's four spiritual laws. I'm dead in trespasses and sins. I can't do it myself. That's incredible. Right? Right? And it's so cohesive. Listeners, if on your first read, you'll you'll get the sense that something weighty is going on, that something important is happening, and that there's meaning in every line. There is. I've taken 16 years, and I'm still unpacking it, but I am no answer. Now, everybody thinks that what Lewis was about was joy. We hear it all the time. Surprised by joy. Zenzuk, mm-hmm. longing, and he talks about this. But at the end of Surprised by Joy... He says something really key. He says, what then of joy? I confess, although I have the stabs of joy as often as I ever did, it had nothing like the kind of importance I once gave it. I now understand that joy serves only as a pointer to something other and outer. So this longing, which Lewis thought was about himself, 
led him out of himself towards another. Well, Lewis is careful with phrases. In the talks that become the four loves, I've got a transcript of them. In 1958, he gives these talks about the four loves, and he gives a definition of love that I think will preach. Talk about that, will preach. Yeah. You can have this for Give Sunday. It to us. Love, he says, is that thing, that experience where we go out of ourselves towards the other. Mm. Go out of ourselves towards another. So there are two components of love. First is a self-abandonment. It's the kenosis of Philippians 2. It's the emptying of the self. It's, it's, it's first Peter. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. To go out of myself is the first step in love. I've got to stop thinking about myself. And then I have to go towards the other. Which leads me to believe from what Lewis is saying and leads me to kind of a new definition. I think that the opposite of love is not hatred. The opposite of love is pride. Hmm. The opposite of love is me, right? Right. Right. In Mere Christianity, book three, chapter eight, Lewis says pride is the great sin, right? And it's the founder of all other sins. Me, that's the problem in the great divorce, right? Yeah. Remember Pam? The boy was mine, mine, That's right. Mine. I kept thinking about her. I was like, man, that's that's a similar characterization as Orwell. Not, o- not only are you thinking about her, you're thinking about her because Orwell repeats that phrase. The girl was mine, mine. Mm. That's an, a clear quote from, from the great divorce. And Pam would drag her son to hell with her rather than leave him in heaven. That's not love. That's not about her son. That's not about Michael. That's about Pam. So love is to go out of the self towards the other. Pride is to go away from the other and towards the self. So that's what Orwell is struggling with. Mm. I am no answer, right? So, So, yeah. Oh, good. I, this, this just came to mind. I remember reading Grief Observed, and he, he, I think he struggles with one joy, his wife dies, wanting her to be with him, but knowing that she's, that, that to want her to be with him still would actually be to not will her great good or something like that. I don't know. I, I wonder if he's struggling right. through those, right. those similar things. In and he's, he, he's, he doesn't want to make an idol of her. Right. Right. And the very last lines, then she smiled, but not at me. Right. That's beautiful. And so to love her well, he had to let her go. He had to release her. It had to be about someone else. That's why in mere Christianity, when he said that a prostitute may be closer to a cult than a cold hearted prig to the spirit of Christ. Um, Now, I'm not advocating prostitution. Please don't take that away. (laughs) It's a horrible and violent crime. Right. Yeah. But. A prostitute at least involves somebody else. A cold-hearted materialist is just gathering money for herself, right? Mm. And so this going out of the self towards the other, I am no answer. So that's part of what's going on. So it's it's um, The Four Loves, it's all of Lewis's books. Um, uh, and it's another component of it is Joy Davidman is co-writing this book with Lewis. So that's another key to understanding the novel. Interesting. You need to understand the chronology and the and the and the and the and the biography. Joel Heck at joelheck.com has got this amazing 1200 page PDF for free called Chronologically Lewis, where he has listed every single date of Lewis's life and what he was doing um, on that date. It's ridiculous. It's incredible. Um, and the context really matters. So Lewis and Joy Davidman begin corresponding in the late 40s. Patty Callahan has done an amazing book called Becoming Mrs. Lewis. I highly recommend that that book. Um, Joy is struggling her way to faith with her soon-to-be ex-husband and writes to Lewis. They begin corresponding. Joy's marriage to Bill Gresham falls apart. She ends up moving to England, getting divorced. Um, meeting Lewis in 52, and they become fast friends. They're immediately um, friends. And she also falls in love with him, but she doesn't tell him. But she starts writing these love sonnets. 
So Professor Don King uh, has, has uh, put out um, uh, Joy Davidman's sonnets. And um, the, the relationship between them is kind of like Orwell's relationship with Bardia. Hmm. So Lewis treated Joy Davidman with friendship. Joy Davidman returned to the friendship, but also had arrows for him. Um, wow. And, and hid it from him. So, uh, and then she writes these, these love sonnets. Well, the love sonnets stop in 1954 and they write till we have faces together in 1955. And I've spoken with Douglas Gresham, Lewis's stepson. I've spoken with Walter Hooper of Blessed Memory, Lewis's former secretary. And both of them have told me the exact same thing. Lewis called Joy Davidman his collaborator and his co-author, and he wanted to put her name on the book. So part of what's happening during the writing of the book is in the spring of 1955, I think that Lewis is beginning to realize that he's in love. I think he's beginning. No, he's not realizing. I think he's beginning to fall in love with joy, although he won't admit it to himself until a couple of years later. Surprised by joy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's surprised by Joy. Yeah, yeah. And that was an open secret, by the way. Joy Davidman typed up the manuscript for Surprised by Joy. Mm. So, um, but yeah, I think he falls in love with her. I've read a lot of contemporaneous accounts and oral histories and things. And Lewis would really act as if he was in love with her. And then in 1956, he marries her in the registry office, dedicates the book to her. And so they're married by the time the book comes out. And in 57, when she gets cancer and he realizes he's going to lose her, he also realize, realizes that he has been in love with her. But that happens around the composing of Tilia Faces, which happens in the spring and summer of 55. So the some of these dynamics that are going on, especially with Joy Davidman kind of helping him write the book, she's more of an editor than a co-writer, but she edits so helpfully that Lewis called her his called her his collaborator, his co-writer, uh, reportedly. So that's another way to kind of see what's going on in the book. And there are passages where you can really hear a feminine voice. And he was very interested in making sure it sounded like a woman speaking. How did Lewis have such an insight into his own mind and his own intuitions? It's a yep. really remarkable thing. What kind of access did he have to be able to articulate uh, his life like that. Yeah, you know, it's a question that comes up often. I've done some work with uh, for the fantastic Max McLean, who um, yeah. does screw tape on stage. He's touring um, further up, further in. He did the most reluctant convert play and then movie, done the great divorce. And uh, occasionally when Max has a, when there's a production of screw tape in town, and Max is on the road somewhere else, he'll ask me to come and do talkbacks um, at the end of his shows. And so I was asked by the audiences of Screwtape, why, why is it so fresh? And why does it seem so real, right? And why does it speak to my soul? And why did, how, does Lewis, how does Lewis know me so well? And this is a book that's 80 years old. And I said, well, it couldn't be because of the changes Max made. Max only changed one word of Lewis's. I think that Lewis's work is still really fresh because of a piece of furniture that was in his bedroom. Hmm. Now, he had a wardrobe in his bedroom, and we all know about that. But I've stayed in his, I've slept in Lewis's bedroom, and there's a piece of furniture that I think helps Lewis understand us so well. It's a mirror. Hmm. I think that Lewis really carefully examined his own heart, as deceitful as it is, his own motivations. I think that he was, well, one, one of his friends called him the most thoroughly converted man that he had ever met. So I think Lewis was serious. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that he was so thoroughly converted because he was willing to kind of look at himself honestly and then deal with things. So, and that's, I think, why he writes so relevantly for the rest of us, because he knew us, he knew himself. So talk about sight. I mean, you mentioned that in the beginning and, or seeing, and, and, and I think you've even mentioned that in, in some of your work where, where sight is a very important kind of sensory thing for um, Absolutely. Lewis. And then sight plays a big role in, you know, being able to see the palace and, and not being able to see what psyche sees and, and, and all these kinds of 
things that pop up. What is the relevance of sight for Lewis? Yeah, uh, sight is, I think, is huge. And that's a great question. Um, you see sight being kind of, well, in fact, I'm trying to develop the universal field theory of C.S. Lewis. <laughs> Mad wish. But I'm trying to get my arms around some of the principles that will explain everything. Um, clarity and charity by means of myth. Hmm. That's what I think Lewis was about. So his end goal is caritas, charity. Charity not in the sense of dropping off my stuff at the goodwill. Charity in the sense of 1 Corinthians 13 and the King James. Unconditional love. I think that what Lewis is about is not joy, but love. And I think that that's the end goal for everything that he's writing about. He wants us to get out of ourselves and go towards each other because I think he's mindful of the two great commandments, to love God and to love neighbor. It doesn't make sense that he's about joy, longing, you know, feeling one's own emptiness. That's self-centered. But I think that it makes sense that he's about charity. And I think that the one of the things that he does in all of his works is that he wants us to see things more clearly, right? That's why he writes about medieval literature. That's right. He writes about history. He's always trying to help us see clearly, even if he wants to, even if he's trying to help us see the devil more clearly by speaking from the devil's voice, he flips things upside down so that we can unpack the riddle and flip them right side up. The key, I think, is with Lucy. Now, if you know your Latin, lux lucus is the word for light. Lucy means light. And mm. Lucy is the one who always sees things first. Always. In fact, when the sea serpent wraps around the dawn treader, she goes and grabs a hatchet because the narrator says Lucy knew where everything was on the ship. She sees the robin first. She sees Aslan first. In Prince Caspian, she sees the invisible Aslan first. And one by one, they and the, the order is, is significant. Seeing is huge for Lewis. Late in, his, um, uh, late in his work, Experiment and Criticism, an amazing book. He says, my own eyes are not enough for me. I must see through someone else's eyes. That's why we read. We don't read to know that we're not alone. That's written in the movies. That's from Shadowlands. We read so that we can see, we can get out of ourselves and see through other people's eyes. And fundamentally, the human condition, and I lived in Washington, D.C. for three years. The human <laughs> problem is we don't understand ourselves as the beloved of God clearly. If all the Democrats and all the Republicans could see themselves as loved of God, all the debate would stop or almost all. That's the, the main spiritual problem. I think grappling with the love of God and then loving him in return, and then because of that loving neighbor, well, those are the three prongs of my, my ministry as a priest, right? And so to see things clearly is what Lewis is all the way about. And so the, um, uh, uh, the, the title of the working title of my study of Till We Have Faces is The Myth of Love. Uh, mm -hmm. unveiling the mysteries of C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces. Myth is the means. Myth means story. So Lewis uses story. The method is clarity to help us see clearly. And the main goal, the thing Lewis wants us to see most clearly, is love, especially the love of God. So that's, I think, what he's about. Now, I've always been fascinated by, at the very end, uh, Orwell's, um, her speech is just cut off. Yeah. And she, she has this remarkable moment where she says, I realize there is, there is no answer. You, you yourself are the answer in a sense. Yeah. She, she comes before God and realizes I've, I've got this all wrong. It feels like Job where Job kind of, oh, yeah. you know, God yeah. approaches Job and says, let me flip the script and I'm you're not going to put sure. me on trial. You, you need to sure. examine your own heart. And, and, she has that moment and then she's, it almost seems like she's about to hit this breakthrough and then, and then it's just cut off. And then there's this little script at the end saying, you know, that this is the last part that we have. And I'm just, why did Lewis end it that way? <laughs> I know what she wrote. I know what hmm. she wrote. So let me circle back and go to the central lie of the book. The central hmm. lie of the book is a lie of omission. Remember that after when Orwell is going up to bury Psyche, 
she hears a voice that says, why should your heart not dance? She then gives a laundry list of all the reasons that her heart has not to dance. But if you read them through, none of them happen. Mm. They're all lying supposals of what may be. And she ends up having a much better life than that. She never stops to ask who's speaking, please. Whose voice is it that invites her to joy, invites her to dance, invites her to get over herself? It's the voice of the God of love. Love invites her to dance and she steadfastly closes her ears to the invitation. And because she refuses love, when she sees Psyche like an hour and a half later, she can't see the palace. Hmm. And remember, that's the central alteration, according to the note. She can't see Psyche in her finery, right? She thinks that she's in rags out on the heath, but she's in robes and in the palace. But that night at midnight, she gets up and she's driven by thirst. Remember thirst with Jill. There is no other stream, right? In in Silver Chair. Um, And she's driven by thirst. Come to me, all you who are thirsty. Right. And so she goes to the stream and she kneels and from her kneeling position, looks up and sees literally the house of Eros, the house of love. She sees the palace of love. And the only reason she sees, even though she has rejected this invitation to joy, she sees because her body has taken on the position of humility. You kneel in humility. And in Letters to Malcolm, Lewis says, the body needs to pray too. When her body assumes a praying position, the God of love says, look, here's my house. He gives her the vision and she denies it. She doesn't tell anybody ever again. She omits it from her story. So you can't you can't trust her reaction, the reactions of Arnam and Bardia and the fox because she hasn't told him the whole truth. So it's that lying that's at the center of it, the center of it, but she sees the God of love and the God of love comes and speaks to her and the house of love. Now, what she writes at the end is this. I ended my first book with the words, no answer. I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer. Who's she speaking to? Love. By the way, this is the God of love who is the son of the God of love, who is the bridegroom of the human soul. Does that sound like anything you do on Sunday? Yeah. That sounds like what I do every Sunday, right? It's an elegant allegory for Christ in a pre-incarnate culture, three, 400 years before the incarnation. I know now, Lord, why you utter your answer. You love yourself are the answer. Before your face questions die away, what other answer would suffice? Only words, words to be led out to battle with other words. Long did I hate you. Long did I fear you. I might. And then the priest says, the queen, we think from the markings after the word might, we think the queen's head must have fallen forward on them and she died and we cannot read them. Okay. At the end of the last battle, all of the animals leave Narnia. And you got that sheep and the goats moment, right? Where the animals are, some of the animals are stripped of their sentience and their speech and they're sent to the left. And some of the animals are sent to the right and they remain talking animals. What's the difference? And that book was published the same year. The difference is the beasts who look at Aslan with hatred and fear lose their, their personhood and go to the left. And the, mm. pe- the beasts who look at Aslan with love go to the right. Hatred and fear to the left. Love to the right. Long did I hate you. Long did I fear you. I might, what? Love you. That's what she writes. Wow. She writes it in ink. Why does her head fall forward? Is it because Lewis is out of story? Is it because Orwell has a condition and dies? No. In the ancient world, how do you worship? Prostrate. She bows her head and presses her head to the words, and now she has a face. Mm. Love you. But it's backwards. You love. And that's the message that Lewis is trying to convey in everything that he writes. That's unbelievable. God 
Oh my gosh. That's incredible. No, that's believable. That's what we're all about on Sunday. But I think that's kind of what's going on. So the four, the, it's four loves, you know, great divorce screw tape. It's all of Lewis's work. It's Joy Davidman. And it's also the gospel. Hmm. This is Lewis's clearest statement of the gospel that I've ever read. That we need to kneel, bow the knee of our hearts so that we can see the house of love and then be invited into the house of love that loves us. And now she has a face. And her face is the love of God. That's the name that will be written on our forehead, the secret name that no man knows in Revelation. It's the love of God. Of course it's the love of God. Why would Lewis's far and away best book not be about the most important thing that we've ever known? That's why I'm crazy about this book. And when you go back, you find it all shot through. And then when you reread Lewis, myth and clarity and love all throughout all of that. That is incredible. Thank you so much for that. I, I mean, that makes me want to read it another time. And I hope our you listeners, should. you guys got to check this book out. It's incredible. And uh, you can read through it and take some of these principles and ideas that, that Andrew is sharing with us. And uh, man, it's it's got so many levels to it. And what an incredible way to use story and narrative to get at the heart of these truths and make it something that comes alive for us. Absolutely. You know, Tolkien was an ardent Catholic all of his life. And before he went into World War I, his friends, the TCBS, um, charged him uh, and his mission was to be a poet. Hmm. And by his poetry, his mission was to kindle a new light or what is much the same thing, to rekindle an old light in the world and tell the world through story about God and truth. And this mission that inspires Tolkien led him to start mythic myth reading groups, which is where he really became friends with Lewis. And it also allowed Tolkien to speak evangelistically into Lewis's life about myth being the heart of the story of God. And that led to Lewis's conversion, which led to Lewis encouraging Tolkien again and again to write the greatest story of the 20th century, The Lord of the Rings, which Tolkien says is uh, subconsciously in its writing and consciously in its revision, a fundamentally uh, religious and even Catholic work. So the two men are writing these amazing modernist novels, which are filled with the gospel. Remember what, what Gandalf said, when, what Frodo says, it's a pity that Bilbo didn't kill Gollum when he had the chance. And Gandalf says, pity, pity stayed his hand. And the pity of Bilbo may one day rule the fate of many. These are gospel values shot through in the fiction of these men, not because they're writing Sunday school tracks, but because they are pouring into these books all of their creativity and the things that mattered most to them, especially the love, the pity, the mercy of God. And that's the story that we'll be singing for all eternity. That's a great way to end. Thank you so much for joining us. You guys can check out Pints with Jack, great podcast. And uh, we thank you for your work. We'll put those links in the show notes. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you, Brian. What a joy to be with you.